are many risks associated with private venture investing or a detailed discussion of risks that should be considered before you invest. Securities are offered through North Capital Private Securities member, FINRA SIPC. Welcome everyone to Venture Investing in Food and Health. We are happy to have you with us today and to further discuss with our CEO, Carter Williams. My name is Lauren Exposito and I work closely with our investors on a day-to-day -day basis. Today, we've also asked ISLEC's new operating partner, Dr. Joan LaRue, Joan LaRover to join us in discussing research in metabolic health and how these new insights profoundly affect our market and portfolio. To start us off, I'm happy to introduce Carter Williams. Carter began his career as an aerospace engineer at McDonnell Douglas, from there progressing into leadership roles at Boeing and Engineering and Technology and Ventures. Carter went on to be a successful entrepreneur and investment banker before assuming the role of EATS as CEO of iSelect. Carter has an MBA from the Sloan School at MIT and a BS in Mechanical Engineering from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Now I'll turn it over to Carter. Thank you, Lauren. iSelect is focused on investing in and around the area of food and health. And the way we sort of look at this is as uh, across the world, there are 7.8 billion people and they may not need a cell phone, they may not need Facebook, but they do need to eat. And that creates a certain demand that we're paying attention to. We also expect that that population is going to be increasing between now and 2050, with about 3 more million, billion people moving into the middle class and 9.8 billion, uh, 2 billion increase in the overall population. Uh, a lot of that increase in population is a function of people living longer and as they move into the middle class, they are interested in better food. And so that's putting additional pressure on the areas of protein production, pigs, cattle, chicken. That extra pressure is, the, the challenge with that is that on a global basis, we only have so much farmland. And so we have an increasing population. We have an increasing demand for protein and we have a limitation on their areas of production, which is putting an interesting challenge and opportunity in front of us. The other factor that we pay attention to is that in the US, we spend $1.7 trillion in the area of food. We spend 1.9 trillion a year on the costs associated with poor nutrition. Those are classically in the areas of things like type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and, and some central nervous system disorders. And the direct cost of that healthcare or the, and the additional cost of loss of life and loss of work and the other challenges in terms of caring for people means that the market of good health, good food is really a $3.6 trillion market. And that really, as we look at both this function globally of the world growing and the demand for food growing, and then in the US as a leading economy actually driving its healthcare costs being closely tied to food, we see that food and health are closely tied together. In terms of our food system, we really see sort of two food systems that the world operates under. System one being what we call ultra process. It really is a byproduct of World War II. It, the thinking behind of it made sense, and that is, is up through World War II, wars were fought really through the function of starving the enemy and causing famine and the challenges overall with the food system. And so the United States set about how do we deliver scale into the food system that reduces that challenge. 
It tends to be a, a food system born from soy and corn. Uh, over the last 60, 70 years, we've dramatically reduced the cost of the production of this, dramatically improved production. It shows itself up in, in processed foods and, and is really a low cost way to deliver a lot of high calories globally. But the challenge is as you move into your 60s, we see higher incidence of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. System B is what we refer to as this fresh food system. It's, it's a more classic food system than in a sense was sort of, you know, when we were delivered here out of the Garden of Eden, we started eating. Uh, it's fresh vegetables, it is all the things that we say should be good for somebody to eat. But the challenge is when you're trying to serve up food to 9.8 billion people globally, you can't really scale the food system. It has a high degree of waste uh, and is an expensive food system to deliver at any kind of scale. And as we look at that, we sort of wonder the pressure or the macro pressures of increased population, the healthcare pressures, and the challenges of these two food systems in terms of the core food system being cheap, but not great for your health, the good system being expensive and hard to access, is there a way for us to drive innovation that delivers what we refer to as system C? And the, the, the design concept that we have in terms of system C is, is how do we deliver a scalable system that does have processed foods, does have fresh foods, eliminates waste, and really sort of brings the cost down over time. If we look at things like cell phone and computers, we've got a tremendous more amount of functionality out of them at a lower cost. And if we start looking at the food system, is there a way to shift that so that food delivers a lot more value at a lower cost and at the same time solves the healthcare challenge that's in front of us? Examples of that are really from areas like plant-based meats. Uh, on the left here, we show ramen noodles and ramen noodles is a staple low cost diet. It is very common in people that have a hard time accessing the food system to get calories. It's not super healthy for you. There are ways to deliver ramen noodles in a, you know exquisite kind of ways with other things in them. But as a system, it, it really is sort of the entry level of, of how we deliver calories at scale. Impossible Burger on the right, uh, if you've had a chance to have it, is a plant-based meat. Uh, it is originally came out as sort of a premium product uh, to attract people who were vegan that wanted a, a meat-like taste. Uh, it's really pretty amazingly close to the taste of meat and is really attractive to sort of the younger vegan generation. But, but really, as we look at the Impossible Burger, we're less interested in it as a premium product we're more interested in the fact that the ingredients that go into it and the proteins and the system that goes to get it is still in a sense a processed product, a little bit decorated better like a burger, but it is a processed product. And our question is, is there a way to bring innovation and technology to the game to drive the cost of impossible down so that it's half the cost of a normal burger? And then people who maybe are ramen noodle eaters, which is a carb-based diet, would switch over to something like Impossible Burger, which is a more protein-based diet and a little bit more balanced in the overall system. And so driving that cost down is important. The other way we sort of look at this problem is sugar. So this is an example of a, a sugar that one of our companies, Bonumos, makes. It's called Tagatose. 
Thagatose is a, a different type of sugar. It tastes just like sugar, it cooks like sugar, but it has one tenth of the glycemic index. And that's an important index for understanding if you eat the sugar, what's the likelihood of getting diabetes? So it's a healthier sugar because it's less likely to lead to diabetes. And it also has pre, prebiotic properties and, and fiber properties to it that are, that are positive for your health. So it's sort of a healthy sugar. An example of this is an interesting type of innovation because you can take any of the recipes that are used for, for all the processed products that, that often show up as something you shouldn't eat and drop in, replace something like tagatose into that product, same recipe and, and deliver uh, an enhanced product that is in a sense low sugar, but doesn't give up the taste so that you don't really need to change human behavior. So areas like Impossible Burger and Banyamos are examples of ways that we can alter the food system at scale that drives some change that, that sort of addresses that healthcare concerns that we have. And really this leads in and around the area of innovation. You know, innovation is ultimately what we refer to as a deflationary force. If you look at uh, cars and cell phones and computers and TVs, their costs have come down with new technology. A plasma TV that costs $17,000 and 2000 is now a flat panel TV twice the size and costs $800. That, that sort of pressure of better, cheaper, it's the type of pressure that we're paying attention to. We're a venture capital firm and it's very consistent that venture capital firms really try to focus in this area of how can we bring innovation and technology to bear to really drive down costs. Notably, while innovation is a deflationary force and we think of a lot of innovation in healthcare, the practical reality is that healthcare and education and costs of that sort keep going up. And really what that means is not that we aren't investing a lot in innovation in these areas, but that that innovation is insufficient to help alter the market in a way to lower costs. And so what we try to do with an iSelect is think about these problems when we think about food and health coming together and costs going up, is there a way through bringing more innovation in? Can we drive those costs down and make a better food solution cheaper so that people adopt it? When the product is cheaper and better, it's pretty easy to get people to, to move to it. Examples of where this has happened is in genetics. Uh, I'm in St. Louis right now at Washington University. Uh, they were part of the original Human Genome Project. Back in 2000, we spent $2.5 billion to sequence the first human genome. Uh, you can now get a whole genome sequence done for about $300. The, the logarithmic change in that cost curve is an example of the type of change. And when you take that change to the next level, you can generate, this is a, what's referred to as a nanopore. A nanopore is sort of a third generation genetic sequencing technology, uh, more advanced than the original genomic testing equipment that, we, that were developed back in the 2000 timeframe. But the ability to take genomic testing and really drive it down to a lower cost means instead of having to be at a major center and spending 2.5 billion or taking an assay and sending it off and getting it for $300, that all of a sudden the ability to sequence in your home multiple times a day, or perhaps embedding this type of technology in multiple devices so that your health is monitored on a continuous basis 
you know, the paradigm of GPS, the first early GPS receivers cost $20,000 and were big and bulky. And now they're a teeny little chip inside your cell phone. Once they're in your cell phone, they enable Google Maps and a whole bunch of other functionality you never knew you needed, uh, but now are instrumental in your daily life. And so as we think about these types of innovations, we think about how these curves and changes and logarithmic changes, exponential changes in terms of the under, underlying cost, uh, actually help drive availability and think of new business models. Taking it a step further in terms of where things are going, one of our company's molecular assemblies is actually working with synthetic DNA. Uh, this is a very important type of technology if you want to scale mRNA vaccines. It is also a very important technology for any of the building blocks of DNA. Uh, it is also applicable for data storage. So we can take a, in the area of about a pickup truck, we can build a DNA-based, synthetic DNA-based data storage device that is equivalent to a million square foot data center. So massive concentration and shift in data, and you're starting to see a convergence of the sort of worlds of IT and biology and this sort of drive in terms of what's often referred to as synthetic biology, where we're able to start working at the building blocks of, of human life and, and agriculture to help get a better understanding of, of how to build better products uh, for health or for food and, and all those functions. When we also look at innovation, we not only pay attention to this deflationary force, but we're paying attention to new business models. And we refer to this often as how to leverage data or how data figures into, into the world of what we're doing. We think of, when we think of these major factors of healthcare and food and, and major system challenges, we really see biology in the terms of synthetic biology and such as a, as a forcing function. We also see new business models as a forcing function, the leveraging of data. This is a chart generated by McKinsey that looks across the value chain across multiple industries and basically identifies that in areas like Amazon or Google, they're highly digitized. All parts of their business models digitized. When you are with Amazon, it's paying attention to a lot more than perhaps we wanted to pay attention to, but it's doing that in a function that they can then reduce inventory and deliver products in a more efficient way. And so the systematization of what they're trying to do becomes an important leveraging point of data at scale to help run a better business. If you look across other areas and particularly agriculture and even healthcare, you can see in agriculture that most of these boxes are red. That's an indication there's really low, uh, low amount of digitization. We use GPS for tractors. We have a lot of automation in that. But in terms of the whole system solution, the ability end-to-end -to, -end to connect things in a way that help optimize and reduce waste, we still have a lot of opportunity to drive innovation. And if you can drive system innovation and biological innovation, you can bring down cost. And really, those are the two levers that we're trying to drive to bring that sort of the inflationary pressure on healthcare and food and turn that into a deflationary pressure point. Which really leads very specifically to what we call the food is health opportunity. The food is health opportunity is, is this conversation around 1.7 trillion in food, 1.9 trillion in healthcare, a $3.6 trillion market in which the right answer to better health may be better food instead of better therapeutics. And the ability to eat better may be a function of genetic tests that we do on the healthcare side. 
we see a convergence of those two things, which is why we've added Joan to our team. And so I wanted to introduce Joan at this point of the conversation. Uh, Joan and I met uh, over a period of time and we were at a point in uh, iSelect, iSelect's history where we've been investing a lot in healthcare and agriculture, but we we're really getting to the point that we needed a real practical experience uh, in, in the role of an operating partner. For us, an operating partner is someone actually lives the world that we're selling into. And so Joan, I wanted to, I think you're on the call now, so I wanted to welcome you and, and uh, maybe you could help everybody who's listening understand your background and tell us a little bit about how you came to us. Sure thing, Carter. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really happy to be on today and I'm very excited to be part of the iSelect team, particularly for the area in which you're investing and how important I see that from my lens. Um, so you can see most of my, my pedigree there from my undergraduate days at Harvard and I have a master's in genetics from the University of St. Andrews on a Rotary Fellowship. I went to medical school in Columbia and then uh, more recently did an MIT T. Uh, Sloan MBA, uh, because I, I saw um, really where, where the healthcare industry was going. And really three pathways um, brought me here. First, my, my work is an ICU physician. I'm a physician in cardiac intensive care. I um, spent over 25 years in which I've been in doing that. And I've seen where technology and data is embedded into everything that we do. And we've gone from a point where in the 1950s, we didn't have ICUs, to now you wouldn't think about connecting every patient up to massive uh, technological um, inflows of data that are coming from their own bodies. Uh, and I really started thinking about that problem a lot, particularly also from my own personal health and the impact of being an on-call physician within that space and up all night. And, and finally, my work globally in the nonprofit that I co-founded, Virtue Foundation, uh, post 9-11, we founded that. And I've really focused on global health and how to create a more efficient marketplace to get healthcare to, to those who need it most. And I, I hope we can touch upon the, each of these things a little bit in our discussions. Oh, that'd be great. And we wanted to spend a little bit of time digging into a couple issues here. But in terms of your background, I mean, really, uh, it is common that venture firms go and hire a PhD or something like that to, to join their team. I, I, as we looked at our role on the healthcare side, we really thought a lot about the clinical side. And, and um, I I'm not sure a lot of people spend time in ICUs, but I, I imagine in ICUs, you, you really have a, a combination of people coming into an ICU that either, you know, they've got a particular challenge that came through life or otherwise, but also challenges in terms of the food system and, and, and you know, things that have gone well and not gone well as a result of the food system. And, and what do you see in the ICU and, and what does that tell you is available? Yeah, so how we think about as so we think about health and things that can be prevented. Absolutely. Uh, well, I think that the ICU is basically an applied physiology lab, right? You're witnessing human physiology under a microscope. So if a patient comes in, they have monitors uh, on them, they have invasive lines within them, they may be ventilated. All of that is providing continuous data to me, beat to beat or breath to breath, that tells me a lot uh, when coupled with the um, specimens that are sent off from, from their blood about where they are in terms of their state of health. And I mean, I am in a 
pediatric cardiac setting, but we have patients from uh, premature infants up to 65 year olds because they, they often, they have had uh, congenital cardiac defects or other reasons to, to be in there for cardiac problems. So I think you're alluding to sort of some of the adult ICU issues where we're seeing the effects of metabolic health. But I think that this being able to look at a patient under the microscope and really thinking that we only started doing that in the late 1950s, um, where it was really novel and new. And I, I think that I saw the impact of the strain of working those hours, uh, even on my own body and my own metabolic health. And it started making me more conscious in my, in my 30s about, well, what am I doing? Uh, how, what am I eating? How is that affecting my physiology? As I witnessed the physiology of my patients, and it got me thinking about um, how we're going to move and shift towards now that we have the avail availability of big data and machine learning and AI to the ability to be able to monitor ourselves outside of an ICU setting, to have more real-time data about our own health so that we can prevent the diseases that are landing patients into an ICU setting, or at least get on top of and mitigate any confounding comorbidities that may develop really as a result of our, our food system. We always think about the world of venture capital, who are the early adopter company, who are the early adopter customers for products? Because they often really are very good at expressing concerns. And I, I, I've had a sense that, you know, we use this term biohacker and I've run into some sort of crazy people in the biohacking world. Um, but I'm getting a sense we've got this crossover point in biohacking where people are really sort of getting frustrated with the healthcare system and trying to solve their own problems. And you've, I think you've got some views on this and have yourself have, have sort of gone against the, the, the normal clinical process to realize that there are better ways. So you want to explain that or build on that? Sure. I mean, I think I, I'm, I, have the, I have access to the tools and I have the ability to understand the tools probably in ways that a lot of people don't from 25 plus years of being in an ICU. And I started thinking about, as I saw impacts of lifestyle on my own health, how can I get ahead of this to um, prevent situations I don't want to find myself in, either in the near term or the long term? And, and you know, the term of the day is biohack, but we've always done this to some extent. It's just that we now have technology and data that makes it more personalized, more of this end of one experience that people are, are talking about. And I think I spent some of my clinical time in the UK health system at Great Ormond Street Hospital and at the Royal Brompton, the biggest heart lung center in Europe. I, I liked this sort of Anna one approach that I learned there. So for each patient in my ICU, I would think about how does the data apply to this individual patient? And then systems think for that patient, how is everything interconnected and what's the best way to approach that? Uh, and so I started to apply what I had learned and how I was caring for patients in an ICU setting to myself to gain more insights in terms of my own state of health or disequilibrium and get it back towards equilibrium, which is what you do in an ICU, basically. You're trying to bring the body back to equilibrium. And, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. It's um, because we have the ability now there's the technology, there's the, the data science, the AI, 
And there's also the better understanding of the biology. I think that is increasing rapidly, our, our ability to come up with new therapies, our ability to come up with better ways to monitor. It's just, I see how rapidly that is shifting. So we, we talk about uh, in this grand system I've described. So we've got, we have an increased population, a lot of pressure on the globe. We've got specific issues in terms of food affordability and the quality of that food affecting health. Lots of things we can invest in. So we, but in terms of the leverage point for venture, our attitude is in and around the area of biology and data as the levers. And then in terms of the sectors that we're investing in, we narrow ourselves down in terms of where are the real points of differentiation where we think the application of venture capital and innovation uh, can help drive down costs and improve overall system. And uh, so the main areas that we concentrate are in and around the food system. And then the healthcare system and on the food system side, we're much more focused on, on agriculture and ingredients. And then really that sort of feeds into the, the food world. And they, they use the things that we produce to do that. On the healthcare side, we've given a lot of concentration to empowering the patient. So how can we get genomics data and personalize the healthcare solution so that the patient has a better functional understanding of what they're trying to do. And then a new thing that we've added here because of some recent research, and we've always sort of touched on metabolic health as a fund, we pay attention to the concerns of what's going on with type two diabetes, but this, we've always had a sense and in our investing over the last, since 2014, that metabolic health is a thing that we need to pay attention to. But there's been a recent paper out by some of the leading diet people that really sort of puts a finer point on this metabolic health. And it's, it's, it's on headline, it doesn't seem profound, but you've told me it's profound in terms of the healthcare world. Do you wanna help everybody understand what that paper says and, and what, it, what it means? Sure, yeah, I, 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 exactly. It's not profound in that it hasn't been said. It's profound in that 18 of the most well-respected names in the field of obesity, um, endocrine and nutrition uh, and cell biology have come together and put their name to this paper that they wrote saying that we need to think about this from a different model, from a different lens. And we've been looking at things from this energy balance model, which I'm sure everybody on this call understands, right? Calories in equals calories out and you need to move more. But that really is not a complete picture for what is going on. And um, the, the, the shift and what, what this paper is saying and others have written about is that we need to start thinking about this more from a carbohydrate insulin model. And we need to start thinking about this more from the uh, lens of our metabolism and what is affecting that metabolism and driving the obesity that we are seeing. Um, and really that comes down to our food system, that ex excessive amounts of carbohydrate and processed uh, foods, uh, these high glycemic index foods that you alluded to at the start of this are causing massive insulin spikes in your body. And that insulin keeps rolling even once it, it, you know, insulin's there for moving the um, glucose into the cells for energy use and for future storage. That's what glucose is for. It's the energy for your cell. 
But that spike in the insulin that lasts longer than you would want is, we know, not great for you from a metabolic standpoint. And then you get the crash because there's so much insulin circulating, your glucose drops, and we've all experienced that crash where then you reach for some more carbohydrate, for some more sugar. And um, I think that you're gonna see more and more coming out in this space around what we choose to eat and when we choose to eat and how we choose to eat. This is really important to the overall state of our ecosystem, of our body. So you have to take a systems view of what needs to change in the food system to improve the metabolism within our bodies. How do we measure that? Uh, and I think that becomes interesting. We're gonna have a deep dive here in iSelect on December 8th on, on metabolic health and monitoring and continuous glucose monitoring. And what that gives you for feedback in terms of what foods impact your body poorly or well. And I think you're gonna see emergence of more and more of these trends. And it's important that the leaders academically in this uh, arena are saying, we need to think about this differently. And, and so I, what, what, what do you think is like, what's gonna be like the first manifestation on that? What's gonna be the first startup in that space or do they already exist? What's the, what's the transition gonna look like? I think they already, I think they already exist and we're going to see more and others. Uh, there's definitely the, the, the trend of monitoring, right? Continuous glucose monitoring, ketone monitoring. Yeah, um, like, like, let's take, for example, I mean, the shift of um, levels health is mm -hmm. applying glucose, continuous glucose monitoring to healthy people. Mm -hmm. Is that a, a waste of medical resources or is that something that you that's the leading edge of the, the this trend? I, I don't think it's a waste of medical resource. Uh, I think that you gain insights and data onto your own physiology and your own body. You know, you, you eat your bowl of oatmeal and you see what it does to you. You eat, um, you know, avocado and some eggs, you see what it does to you real time. So I think that as you gain those insights, you're going to make different choices. So I don't think this is a, a waste of resource. And in fact, if you make different choices and you avoid having diabetes, it's cost efficient. Yes. I mean, that's just one example, but I think we're going to see more and more of that. And I think consumers are demanding it. They want to do what they can to improve their own overall health. It's just how do, how do you find what is really going to help get you there? And do you think that doctors, you know, as we think about this, are the patients going to lead or the doctors going to lead or what, you know, in terms of the shift in the healthcare system as a result of the, this paper that was written, are, do you have a sense in terms of your colleagues and how they're going to respond? Well, I think that whenever you see papers coming out from, you know, leading opinions in the field and there's a group of them together, you're going to get some pushback, but you're also going to get movement in that direction and more resource and attention applied in terms of uh, research and advancing our understanding. And I think that's the drive, right? We really want to get to the truth of the biology of our, of our, of our own physical being, and then how can we impact that earlier? And and, I think and, that driver's there. And as you think about now your expanded role, you've got a lot going on. You're, mm -hmm. you're you're working in ICU, you've got a foundation in Africa, you've, you're very active in the 
Kendall Square Act area in terms of with things with Sloan, and now you've added this cadence of, of venture capital. How does venture capital make you a better doctor? Well, How does it help it, you treat your patients better? I think it feeds off of each other, honestly, because you, you're thinking about the system's view. You're thinking, how can I help enable and bring to market the new technologies and the new companies that are really going to help our own overall well-being as, as, as a human being. That is my goal as a doctor, right? To improve human health. And I see this as a way to improve human health at scale. Similar to what I'm doing with the Virtue Foundation. You know, I've did on the ground clinical work in many countries. I know we've talked about a lot of the work we've done in Ghana and some of it in Mongolia and other places. And on the ground clinical work led, led me and others in our, our, our uh, organization to start using mapping technology and machine learning, and then moving on to predictive analytics to, to create this platform, which allows us to see that ecosystem. Where are the healthcare facilities? Where are the healthcare NGOs? How are they networked? What is the data more granular on the ground to show you the picture? So that gives you the capacity to dramatically improve the lives of millions of people at scale. And for me, that's one of the most impactful things I have done or seen in my life. And that platform launches this month and we're publishing a world compendium of this with Taylor and Francis to accompany it. And I see iSelect is kind of fitting into that. It's the same idea. It's like impact at scale. And that is what's exciting to me, that we have the ability to improve our food system and improve our healthcare system to really impact lives in a positive way. And, and expand on that, that's a, that will provide a better sort of population health kind of perspective on what's going on in Africa and then better figure out how to allocate resources and, and serve that community as it, as it enters more of a healthcare solution. Yes, I mean, we've used that. I've used that on the ground during COVID remotely from here to uh, get um, in place oxygen, ventilators, all that was necessary, hand washing stations ahead of the curve. Uh, we've used it to lower uh, infant and child mortality by getting um, non invasive ventilation programs in place because we understood where the staffing was and the expertise was. And we've used that to create an emergency transport service because we understood the road conditions and the needs of, of the community there. But this yeah. is going to scale not to be used just by us, but to be used by any organization, whether that's an NGO, whether that is a government, or whether that's the private sector. I think it's making the invisible visible. And that's what we're kind of talking about here on the healthcare side with iSelect in terms of the, the more personalized preventative approach, it's making the invisible visible. The same way in my ICU, I make the physiology of that patient visible with all the technology yeah. that I use. Well, good. Well, I, I certainly appreciate you adding to the team and, and bringing the insights and, you know, and a lot of what we're trying to do when I select is really, we certainly want to make good investments for our investors, but we also want to be sure that those investments have a positive impact. I, the, so the money goes further than just the returns. But uh, so it's, it's been great. It's been great to have you as a colleague on the team. And, and I appreciate that. I, Lauren, do I we think have that's any? important, uh, Carter. Those have to align because otherwise it's not a sustainable solution. So the, 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 it's very important. 
Uh, Lauren, do we have any questions? Yes, so I would like to encourage everyone that if they wanted to have anything elaborated on or any questions they'd like to ask, you can use the Q&A box below or raise your hand. Um, it looks like we do already have a question. Um, it's directed towards Joan. It said, which companies, if any, do you think have the potential to move the needle, um, I guess, within the metabolic health space? Um, sure. Um, well, I guess we've already alluded to one in terms of the continuous glucose monitoring space. Levels Health is one where they're trying to tackle metabolic disease and uh, they're going to be speaking um, with other guests at our December 8th deep dive. I think there are a couple of others in that space do, trying to do similar things. January AI, uh, which is also a US-based company and Super Sapiens in Europe. Um, I think there's a lot of um, push to understand this. They are using the, the continuous glucose monitoring approach. Um, Readout Health, which is an iSelect portfolio company where um, there's a breath analyst state for ketone monitoring. And I think it's important to be able to understand glucose and ketone metabolism in your body simultaneously. So there's a value of these marrying up eventually. And then I think you're, there's a lot of there's a lot of other companies I could elaborate on that are um, showing signals in this space. Okay, and we have one more question. Um, how did diet impact COVID and what did we learn from COVID? So COVID, um, which I guess we're still, we're still living in and I've certainly lived through from the ICU side. Um, uh, it's been a time in which I think everybody, first of all, everybody's been impacted and everybody started thinking about hygiene and infection and risks to their own body, their own ecosystem. And I think as we grew to see that uh, populations of patients that had metabolic syndrome, that had diabetes, that had hypertension, um, had these comorbidities, were more at risk of severe illness and succumbing to COVID infection. I'm not saying that was everybody, but that was definitely a significant risk factor. And I think that it's, it's made everybody more aware of the impact of their diet on their, on their health. So I think it has kind of prepped people. So it's not just sort of the, the fringe biohacker, it's more everybody's thinking more, where's my food source? Where's it come from? What's it doing to my body and my health? I think it's it's getting the information to know how to make the right choices, and those companies are going to be important for our future. I think. So the uh, the ICU was a byproduct of of uh, polio. So when I the the innovation of the ICU was a function of what we went through with polio. So what do you think? You think that. COVID is going to innovate on the food side? Is it going to accelerate? Yes, I think it is going to accelerate because there's a, there's a convergence of a lot of things, right? Um, the biology and the science keeps flowing. I think what we did as a healthcare community was incredible during COVID. I was on calls almost uh, every night, if not it was every other, with I ICU physicians on like thousand person calls across the world. And we were sharing data and information and accelerating 
uh, it's a miracle really that we had a vaccine in the time we did, that we had care protocols in the time that we did, because everybody pulled together. The other piece is the, the technology piece that consumers got used to telemedicine because you couldn't see your physician otherwise. And it became normal to interact on your phone or on your laptop or your iPad. So this kind of on the go medicine and healthcare is seemingly more normal to people. And then I think the other piece is the, the concern about how do I maintain that health? And, and everybody had a reset from this. Everybody's lifestyle changed. Everybody started thinking about, well, okay, now, now what? Great. Thank you, Joan. So on behalf of Carter and my colleagues at iSelect, I would like to thank everyone for attending and taking part in the conversation. If you have any additional questions or would like to continue the conversation, please feel free to send me an email and I'll be happy to answer. Very good, thank you. Thank you.